Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. We continue to dig into the economic ramifications of some of the closures, and we've seen a number of retailers furlough or lay off whole hosts of workers, the latest being Macy's today saying that it was going to close uh, after closing all of its stores on March 18th. Uh, Now it's going to furlough most of its 130,000 workers. This has led led to a lot of questions about commercial real estate values, rent payments, and the like. Joining us to say, I'm really pleased to say, is Hassam Noji. He's president President and Chief Executive Officer of a major commercial real estate firm, Marcus and Millichap, based in Calabasas, uh, California. And uh, Hassam, I'd love to get your take, first of all, given the Macy's news, given the fact that we've seen retailers across the board just close down stores in mass. Will this have a permanent effect on commercial real estate values that have not even yet been priced in? Good morning. Thank you for having me on the program. Uh, first of all, this is unlike anything we've all experienced uh, in, at the risk of uh, stating the obvious in that it's really a health crisis and most of our clients and everybody participating in our industry is first and foremost concerned about the health of uh, their, their employees and their, and their families. So it's very difficult to uh, separate the emotional component of that with the business component at this minute, which is unusual uh, from anything we've seen in the past. But uh, to answer to your question, What's happening around us right now is hastening the trend that was already playing out for retail. As you know, e-commerce has really profoundly changed brick-and-mortar retailing, and a lot of the um, obsolete older shopping centers and a lot of shopping centers that relied on department stores have been hurt badly by what was already happening. This is just speeding that up. Uh, I think there's going to be more short-term pain because of it. Clearly, there's uh, no way around that. But I also want to point out the rebirth of retail, where we've seen so many examples of renovations, repositioning, and retenanting of retail that has been widely successful and has become a great investment vehicle. And there are components of retail, like the stable grocery-anchored uh, type of retail that is, uh, of course, doing very well right, right now, but was doing well even before the health crisis began, and fast food restaurants, drugstore single tenant retail where you have one uh, tenant on a long-term lease and uh, is much less risky, those are doing very well and in great demand uh, by investors. Hassam, taking a look at the $2 trillion fiscal stimulus package, what was in there for real estate from your perspective? I think the most important part of the package is the fact that uh, uh, there's $350 billion allocated for small business uh, forgivable loans and $500 billion for large companies, as, as much help as can be delivered to companies to stay afloat during the worst of this health crisis in order to uh, limit uh, employee layoffs is the most important component because that has to do with tenants, and tenants have to do with the occupancies of commercial real estate. In addition to that, the way that the Fed has stepped in at an unprecedented speed and scale very different from 2008-2009 when we absorbed, you know, the lack of a playbook taking months to come up with solutions uh, has now resulted in their ability to be much more nimble and much more uh, bold in the way that come in to basically backstop liquidity and assure the functioning of the of the credit markets. 
that's a profound help for not just commercial real estate, but, uh, but all businesses. And uh, I think it really lays the groundwork for a, a rapid recovery, just as much as this is going to be a very deep, uh, painful downturn and a, hopefully a short-term one. The recovery, because of the action that's being taken, should therefore be just as, just as profound. Hassam, there's some talk about the defreezing of corporate credit markets as the Fed steps in and uh, says it's going to buy certain securities there. Given the fact that you're one of the largest commercial real estate financing companies, you closed a lot of transactions. What's your sense of how much uh, we are looking at uh, a possibility for just a complete shutdown or a freeze in the commercial uh, transactions going forward? Well, we're seeing deals continue forward. We're seeing deals close in the last two weeks and the last few days uh, because they still make sense and the buyers and sellers are comfortable with the execution and lenders are still coming through. Many deals are not moving forward. Uh, some lenders have stepped out of the market. There are a wide variety of reasons for that and locations for that. It isn't one or two trends. But uh, the most important thing to remember is there will be a, a, a short time window where pricing will be difficult and being able to kind of read the market will be very difficult. But we expect as soon as the market kind of gets its footing on, on valuation and begins to see the, the bottoming of the health crisis, first and foremost, and then secondly, the, uh, you know, the beginnings of some kind of an economic normalization, I think the market's going to move very fast with a, a significant amount of pent-up demand and, and transactional activity. I think the Fed's backstop is critical during this uncertainty, window of uncertainty, because it's going to prevent uh, you know, a lot of loan defaults and a, a lot of, if you will, fire sale expectations that really aren't justified. You know, We have to remember, prior to this crisis, commercial real estate was in great shape. We hadn't overbuilt it. We hadn't over-leveraged it. The economy was in great shape. That added added to the all the actions yep. that are being taken by the Fed and the government really spells a pretty uh, you know pretty good safety net. Hassam Noji, thanks so much for joining us. Hassam Noji is the CEO of Marcus and Millichap, uh, talking to us about the commercial real estate uh, business and uh, clearly some tough times coming up uh, for that business, Lisa. And again, we just saw some, you know, it's going to be really, really difficult on a lot of, uh, you know, small and mid-sized businesses. And uh, obviously that'll be, that'll trickle down to the real estate as well. Looking at WTI crude, $20.20 a barrel, just extraordinary here. So when we talk about commodities like oil, we talk about supply and demand, and it doesn't look good on either side for oil right now. That's why we were fortunate to have our next guest, Ellen Wald. She's a president of Transversal Consulting and a Bloomberg Opinion contributor. Uh, Ellen, thanks so much for joining us. So we know the demand picture is bad and seemingly getting worse by the day, but let's start with supply. What are the Russians and the Saudis thinking about today? Well, exactly. Well, uh, the Russians are probably thinking about the phone call that President Trump says he's going <laughs> to have with President Putin later today, uh, during which he plans to discuss oil. But the interesting thing is that the real problem is actually Saudi Arabia. In fact, there's been indications that Russia is at the very least not increasing production and possibly uh, interested in cutting it. Uh, we heard some uh, indications of this from some of the Russian oil companies last week. Meanwhile, Saudi Arabia is coming out and saying not only are they increasing their production to 12 million barrels per day uh, starting April 1st, 
but they're also planning, uh, starting in May, of making 10.6 million barrels per day of oil available for export. So essentially, they're taking uh, their drop in domestic demand, and they want to put that on the market, too. All right. This has been leading to fears and the reality of storage space being filled up. Literally, there is nowhere to put all of this oil. And we saw in the U.S. here a driller actually paying someone at one point to just take their oil because they had too much of it and needed a place to put it. What's the end game here? The end game is that uh, production is going to have to decline. Uh, that's that's really the only option here. Uh, drillers are going to have to start plugging wells. Uh, they're going to have to start uh, reducing rig counts. We've already seen rig counts going down in the Permian. But um, the reality is, unless they want to fill every ship on the sea with uh, crude oil and products and every uh, idle jet with jet fuel, uh, they're going to have to calm down with this production because uh, the demand problem isn't going to be resolved immediately. Uh, Demand is going to take some time to come back. Gasoline demand could come back pretty quickly once uh, social distancing and lockdown restrictions are eased, but it doesn't seem like we're going to be uh, getting that anytime soon. All right. So give us a sense, Ellen, of what the Saudis are thinking about here. What do you think is their mindset here? They they can see where global demand is and, and is not, uh, and they can look ahead and just see where the storage capacity issues are. What are they really thinking here? Yeah, this is this is the big question. When uh, when this whole issue got got started uh, in the beginning of March, the Saudis actually had a pretty good plan uh, before uh, the coronavirus lockdowns started across the U.S. and then in uh, in Europe and now in India. Demand was down, particularly from China, but it wasn't bad. And so their plan to increase production was actually had some merit. The idea would be increased production, you'll increase revenue, even if uh, you send oil prices down by a bit. The problem happened when, first of all, they got into this price war uh, kind of narrative, and that sent prices down further than they probably would have liked. And then on top of that, you add in the coronavirus lockdowns, which were just killed demand almost immediately, uh, and that sent prices down further. So now, even if they're producing and selling a lot of oil, if they're only selling it at, you know, $20, $25 a barrel, they're not making more revenue. And sooner or later, they're going to have to realize that this is a serious problem. Uh, And I think we're going to start to see that in April as we see the, the big question is, can Saudi Arabia actually sell all of this oil? Does it have buyers? They say they do. Anecdotal evidence suggests that maybe they don't. But we're going to have to watch this play out basically in uh, the tanker space. Are we going to see these tankers filling with oil, leaving Saudi Arabia, and then unloading it? And if we don't, then that's going to expose Saudi Arabia's problem. And what does this mean for the shale patch when we see uh, pipeline operators actually saying to drillers, just stop, just keep it in the ground, guys, because we don't have any space? Are they all going to go bankrupt? 
It's likely that a lot of them will go bankrupt. They'll be bought by others. Uh, there are going to be a lot of consolidations. It's not going to be pleasant. We're going to see production slow down in the United States. And we were already looking at a somewhat of a production slowdown coming on uh, by May, but this is going to be a much more dramatic drop. The good story in all of this is that the oil is still there. And when this is all over, when demand picks up, which it will, then that oil is still going to be there. And even if the same companies aren't there, new ones will likely form uh, or the uh, few that kind of bought up the assets of the others will start producing again. So the uh, America's future as an oil producer is not over. This is not the end of that story. Ellen Wald, thank you so much for being with us. Ellen Wald, president of Transversal Consulting and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist joining us. I got to say, Paul, my favorite quote that I've read over the past few weeks has been, rocks don't go bankrupt. That, that's, that's sort right. of the silver, that's the that's silver right. lining for the shell patch right now. Yeah, there's still oil in the ground. And as Ellen said, when the market comes back, uh, there'll be some some uh, oil people out there drilling and bringing it out for us. Yeah, although I, I do have to think, uh, what does it say if you have pipeline operators literally saying, just keep it in the ground? It's not going anywhere good right now, guys. Uh, looking right now at Brent crude, that's really what's taken on the chin this morning. It's down to $22.60 a barrel, the lowest in 17 years. 17 years, yep. Interesting to see uh, what's going on right now in credit in the meantime, because you have sort of dual forces, given the fact that oil prices are falling to the lowest in 17 years. And then you also have concerns about growth. And then you have the Fed uh, trying to backstop the whole thing, which is leading to this jumble uh, with a lot of dire predictions. And yet people still saying it's time to buy, Paul, sort of this odd yep. moment uh, where there seems to be an opportunity here, but people aren't sure whether they're going to get just to quote to quote uh, Wall Street speak, their faces ripped off in yeah, the exactly. process. Um, and someone who's been tracking this really well and has been, frankly, uh, on the ball every time we speak to him is Greg Hahn, who wasn't necessarily as enthusiastic earlier about the enthusiasm we were seeing in the markets and now joins us, Chief Investment Officer for Winthrop Capital Management. Greg, I'm curious, from your perspective, is this a time of opportunity in the high yield space, or is this a time of growing risk? So, in, so in the high yield space, we have to separate it from the hot, the high yield basis, and the we take the energy sector out because of what's going on with oil prices. We think the energy sector is going to go through some turmoil, um, and it's a it's a. I think at the end of the day, it's a buyer's market, but you got to do your homework and you got to be selective. But there's some good companies out there that are on sale. So what are some of the, the sectors or the companies that uh, that are on your screen at the moment? So we've been focused, candidly, we've been focused on the up and quality trade. So in away from high yield in the investment grade sector, the new issue market has been extremely active. And where we can buy in the short end, the short end has had some serious dislocation. So we were buying two and three year paper that had yields of 6%, which was just from forced selling. We're also seeing opportunities in the CMBS market, and that's where the problems are going to occur. Is, is we see, you know, we expect um, rent payments on the corporate side. To, uh, we're going to miss rent payments for April. We're going to probably miss them for May. 
Um, and so we're going to see some deterioration and some increase in delinquencies in CMBS. So that there's forced selling in the CMBS sector that's put a lot of paper out on the street, and that's 8 to 10% kind of yields. What are your baked-in assumptions, Greg? I'd love your sense as you extrapolate out of how deep and long the recession will be and whether that even matters in terms of where things are being valued and the opportunity therein. Yeah, so for us to make sense of this, we have to separate what's going on in the economy and what's going on in the financial system with what's going on in the capital markets. So we put those into it all gets smushed together. But if we if we focus on it, on the capital markets piece of it, um, just specifically to your question, we think the REIT the REIT sector right now is going to be challenged. But the way that it flows through in the commercial mortgage loan space, uh, we we expect businesses to miss their April first. You know, we're going to see you know a decline in April first rent payments. We're going to see a decline in May 1st rent payments, and then we'll start to see some um, improvement after that as businesses just get back to up and running. And that particularly is in that strip mall space where you see restaurants, nail salons, barbershops, that kind of service stuff that's effectively shut down for this period of time. So, uh, Greg, what kind of economic assumption are you guys kind of working on? We had a bunch of Wall Street investment banks over the last week coming out with GDP forecasts quarterly for 2020. And most had, I would characterize as kind of a V uh, type of recovery with a sharp, sharp contraction in Q2, but then a rebound in Qs 3 and 4. Is that what you're modeling in? Yeah, so <laughs> we, I can't put numbers to it, but we, if we look at shapes of letters, um, we're we're not looking at a V-shaped recovery right now. This one's going to be it's going to be shorter than the financial crisis of 2008, but this is going to be uh, extended. Um, this is going to go on for two quarters. Greg, I, I want to talk more about speculative grade credit in general, and you were talking about the opportunities in higher rated junk bonds. I'm just wondering about investment grade downgrades, the fallen angel kind of syndrome. We've seen an escalating number of downgrades. I'm just wondering at what point that's going to cause forced selling that bleeds out into the top tier of high yield. How worried are you about that? Well, it, it absolutely will. The, um, I mean, we saw Ford get downgraded last week. I think it was last week or two weeks ago. Um, we're, we're going to see it. it. This happened in the late 1990s, early 2000s, where we saw Georgia Pacific, Ford, GM, a number of investment-grade companies get downgraded. <clears throat> with, with low interest rate and tight credit spreads, it's not going to have an Im- a fundamental impact on the company. That does, it's not going to increase their borrowing costs. Uh, as long as they can access the markets, it's going to have a, a bigger effect in the capital markets for those of us who navigate where where we want to allocate dollars. So a big a big amount of a large amount of um, uh, credit coming from investment grade into high yield. We're going to have to digest that into the high yield space. Yes, it's so Greg, be a challenge. Yeah, what's your sense of the financial system, the health of the financial system? Maybe say now versus two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Right. So in 2008-2009, we were dealing with uh, a, a growth in the subprime loan space that worked its way into uh, structured product, different types of product. We don't have, from our view, we don't have those kinds of excesses uh, in um, uh, the residential space. Um, we thought the commercial mortgage loan space was a little bit extended. Um, and so there, there's been a lot of development over the last eight years. The, uh, fan, the, but the financial system is, is significantly stronger than it was 12 years ago because we're, we're talking about banks now that have capital levels in excess of 8%. And the context for that is back in the financial crisis, I think the banking sector was close to 
So I think the banks have enough of a shock absorber to um, to absorb this much better than they had. And, and uh, part of this is the, the Fed has responded so quickly to put programs in place to help support commercial paper and repurchase agreements and, and really to support the financial system. So it's got the shock absorbers it needs to, to, to help absorb these um, this, this crisis. So one thing I've been struggling with, just taking a step back, the entire, there's a theory out there anyway, that there's a big shift going on that's getting accelerated by the coronavirus to a digital economy. You're seeing Slack, you're seeing Zoom all surge, you're seeing sort of anything having to do with online delivery do well. And a lot of the high yield market is tied to the old economy and to industrial companies that are struggling arguably the most. What do you say to people who just argue that you have all these over-leveraged companies that are going to not be able to grow into their capital structures that's going to lead to a whole host of defaults with bigger uh, loan losses on them, loan loss recoveries, than during the 2008 crisis? I keep hearing more about that. Is that a real worry? Um, yeah. The difference between the, the new economy and the old economy, the old economy, if, if there are assets tied to those businesses, there's value. In the new economy, uh, where you've got uh, technology-based uh, businesses, there's there's just from a credit standpoint, there's fewer assets. So that your your asset is actually your client base. It's not necessarily your website, uh, the technology to support it. Um, but uh, it's it's a valid point. I mean, it's we've got this whole shift. Every industry is going through some tectonic shift right now. And I always joke we never saw we never got a memo when the typewriter left the office back in 1987 or whenever it left. You know, it's like it just starts to happen, and then the typewriter repair shop goes out. So some of this is going to have an impact on literally how we do business. Greg Hahn, thank you so much uh, for joining us and hanging on there. Greg Hahn, Chief Investment Officer for Winthrop Capital Management. Well, there's been a lot of back and forth between President Trump and General Motors about ventilators. Are they making them? Are they being? Are they charging too much? Let's get the latest with David Welch, Bloomberg Detroit Bureau Chief. So, David, give us the latest on what's going on with General Motors and switch, pivoting into the manufacturing of ventilators. Yeah, so they, they've actually started tearing down the original uh, machine at Bentec, which is GM's partner. They're tearing that machine down at an auto parts plant in Kokomo and rebuilding it and really kind of perfecting the, the I call it an assembly line, but it's really a room full of people assembling these things, uh, the factory that will make these things. So they're, they're getting to the final throes of uh, really setting up a whole process to make thousands of ventilators. And this is important because Ventec, uh, which which makes this critical care ventilator that can be used for COVID-19 patients, they were used to making 150, maybe in a good month, 250 units. And working with GM, they're going to try to get to 10,000 a month. So uh, this is a huge leap for a company that makes something that, uh, while important, was not heretofore in such great demand. There was some controversy, David, over General Motors and how much they were charging for some of these ventilators. President Trump singling them out and talking about this. Where are we on that? So Trump kind of did a complete about face in his press briefing yesterday and said GM is doing a fantastic job. But the, the initial controversy was Trump just came out Friday and said they weren't moving fast enough. They were gouging. Uh, to be blunt, these are both kind of dodgy claims. Um, first of all, you have Ford and General Electric are trying to make these, and they were saying they won't be ready until June, and GM is looking to start production in mid-April. So 
they're ahead of every other venture out there uh, that, that at least has been discussed publicly. GM is actually not really even negotiating with Ventec negotiates the terms of the deal. GM is a contract manufacturer that gets paid by Ventec. And GM is doing the work at cost, and Ventec is charging, uh, at least what they told me, the same $18,000 a unit that they've been charging all along. Uh, what may not be totally appreciated here is, and, and Ventec's unit is one of the cheaper critical care units out there. Uh, it's actually a five-in-one unit. It handles four other respiratory therapies that you need for these patients when the other ventilators are just that, that are on the market are just ventilators and you have to buy the other four pieces of equipment separately. So there's some talk that maybe that wasn't totally appreciated uh, by the president when, when he started complaining about price, but he seems to be happy with everything now because two days after his rant, he, uh, he kind of backpedaled. So, David, just you mentioned mid-April. Give us a sense of kind of the ramp up here in terms of timing, number of units of production. What's the best guess at this point? Look, I, I think when they start producing in mid-April, it's going to be pretty small numbers. Right now, GM has 300 people working in that plant, and they need to, over time, get up to 1,000. So they're looking for volunteers uh, who, who've been laid off at their current uh, the plant in Kokomo, Indiana. They're looking for volunteers from a metal stamping plant in nearby Marion, Indiana, and they're going to have to do some new hires. They're going to have to, they're still kind of finishing the process that they'll use to make these. And, and keep in mind, when engines or cars are assembled, they go along a rolling assembly line and workers sort of, you know, they, they, they do certain tasks with robotic arms as the car goes by. Making ventilators is a lot more like making watches than assembling cars. You have a lot of people sitting at tables with small tools looking through a lens and screwing small electronic components together. That's why GM chose this plant. It's an electronic components plant. Yeah. Uh, that's what it did before. But it's still a different process. GM has never done it before. Their parts suppliers, have been, these are all automotive parts suppliers that are doing this kind of work. Yeah. So it's new parts for them. And uh, they're going to have to validate this and make sure it all works. So when this starts in mid-April, you're going to see pretty small amounts. And maybe by the end of, of April, you know, you'll be up to hundreds or, you know, if they're, if they're really good, you know, over 1000 a month. So, yeah, well, um, there, so, so we're not going to we see. We're, surprised, but. We, 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 we're not going to see huge numbers there. The other place we're not going to see huge numbers is just the auto manufacturing in general. How low are auto sales going to be? What are some of the predictions at this point? So we're... we're probably looking at a March that was pretty well decimated by this. Everybody was saying the first week was pretty good, and then all the shutdowns started hitting. People were avoiding dealerships. Uh, you know, there, there were uh, towns and, and states basically keeping people inside, except for essential industries and so forth, you know, about all of that. So that's really hammered sales. It's, it's going to be a rough quarter when we see, uh, see the numbers on Wednesday. And going into April, I'd expect the same thing because you're probably still going to have uh, a lot of people staying home, even if they're allowed to go out in their states just to avoid contact with others. David Welch, thank you so much for being with us and all the best to you and your family. David Welch, Bloomberg Detroit Bureau Chief. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.